0: When I feel like I'm losing my way, and that happens at times, I need a benchmark, right? My dad was a land surveyor, and a benchmark was always that final sort of absolute authority. And you had to, you had to find this benchmark, and you pull all your other points back to it, and sometimes you find out from that benchmark either you're accurate or you have become skewed and offline. When that happens in my own life and my own spirit, Two great benchmarks for me are one of the four Gospels. I personally like the Gospel of Mark because it's succinctness. It's basically Peter's eyewitness account recorded by Mark. Um, but then also the book of Acts. Because when you're called to help lead a church, there, are, there, there is an overwhelming amount of expectations placed upon you. And some are good and, 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 and some aren't healthy at all. And so to be able to go back to the Gospels and see Jesus interact with the woman at the well, right, John chapter 4, or how he restores Peter after Peter really messed up, and the grace and the quickness with which Jesus did that, we need that reminder as well, that I can be restored, that I can move back to Jesus uh, or, or in the book of Acts, what were they actually doing? What does a successful ministry look like? And, and am, I, am I emphasizing the things that I see in that first generation of church history? So these are benchmarks. We're tying, in a sense, we're setting up the Theodolite, and we're, we're running a line back to the benchmark, and are we still good? Can we enter this document legally because we're still online? Let's see how we're doing in Mark. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14. The simple and beautiful message preached by Jesus. You have a snapshot here of Jesus actually preaching. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. And saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very succinct, clear, good news message. And after the Son of God appears into the world and preaches that clear gospel, you would expect something staggering to happen. Here's Jesus preaching about good news. But what you you find is actually something completely different. Look at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. So you've got two pairs of brothers here, four men. And we in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Is that what you expected? Jesus comes proclaiming the good news and he chooses four fishermen. He doesn't go up on the hill to the synagogue. He doesn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. He finds these sunburnt, sweaty, calloused hands, men who smell like fish and lake. And he invites them to follow. That's the simplicity of God's plan. How is the good news going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world? Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. so what is so remarkable is how completely unremarkable the master's plan is. And you know why Jesus has to use imperfect people? (laughs) Because that's all he has, right? I, I would love to be shepherded, lead shepherd by Jesus himself. And I kind of get to when I go back to the Gospels, but it's not going to happen here. And that's why we are an imperfect family trying to worship in spirit and in truth together. And we are on a very hard journey together to try to discern what is God's way for this church forward. Jesus' mission does not conform to conventional standards of greatness He doesn't have large armies or cultic followers or innate architecture. It says in verse 16, they were fishermen. Our expectations in ministry can be so life draining. If we expect to have Disney children's church program. That's not not something you see put forward in Acts or the Gospels. Or a dynamic personality, somebody who can sway the masses. You have been under a pastor for twelve years who does not sway the masses. My only hope is that if I if I rightly divide God's word, His word will not return void. And after twelve years anywhere working with people, you also you also become very well aware of your own weaknesses, and how much more beautiful Jesus should look. Then it doesn't mean we're not called to be faithful. It doesn't mean we're not called to be discerning and, and, and to measure the truths and evaluate together. But what it does mean is it's an acknowledgement that Jesus is unique and He alone is to be worshiped. What I find encouraging about these two pairs of brothers, four fishermen, is that they will disappoint. They fail Jesus. They underachieve. They overreact. By the way, there's hope in that. Here you, have, here, here you have the twelve men Jesus is setting aside, creating this sort of, sort of fellowship to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if you look at the pages of Scripture for what they really present, these men, these people are very much like you and me. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Because this is really where the process of Jesus re-educating his disciples begins. And it's where Jesus first announces, and this, this is the message. So when he's talking about the good news of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Chapter one, he's going to start to unfold what that looks like. The implications of that. Look at look at Mark 831. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. This wasn't a trendy message. It wasn't a popular message. It's not, it really wasn't even a message that was received uh, well at all. Do you remember who responded to that first announcement? It was Peter. And Peter does what? What does he tell Jesus? No, that's not the mission. Can you imagine correcting Jesus when he tells you what the mission is going to be? Like, I'm going to step in here and I'm going to correct the son of God. That is not a good idea. He rebukes Jesus and and it was done in front of the other disciples. So Jesus, in his authority, has to then rebuke Peter. And he says, very strong wording, get behind me, what? Satan, because it was satanic thinking that suggests Jesus doesn't have to die. So that's the message from Mark one all the way to the reeducation. It is that the king has to die. Peter protests and rebukes. And then look at Mark chapter 9, verse 30. He gives a second announcement. And this is where we're sort of going to land this morning as we prepare to take the the fellowship meal of communion together. And and in both cases, the, the first pronouncement and the second pronouncement, the disciples, much like you and me at times with God's church, respond By revealing how completely they have misunderstood the values of God's kingdom. Peter rebukes Jesus, no, Lord, not you. You don't have to die. It's the same thing Satan suggested in the wilderness, right? I can give you all the kingdoms of the world and you don't have to die for them. So now now Peter is actually echoing satanic words from that wilderness confrontation. And he has to tell them a second time, no, I'm going, I'm going to die and rise again. And they don't get it. They totally miss the most important message that Jesus came to preach. So here, here, are, here are some things that run counterculture to our expectations. The king of the kingdom must die and rise from the dead. By the way, that, that gives us a picture of the heinousness of our sin and that the wages of sin is death. But secondly, this one, and this is also countercultural. The first must be last of all and servant of all. And then third, the kingdom is larger than our personal experience of it. Like right now, God's at work in countries where we can't even understand the language and among people that we will never meet this side of eternity. God's kingdom is bigger than our personal experience of it. So look at Mark chapter nine, verse 30. The king must die and rise from the dead. Here's the second pronouncement. And I I want you to I want you to look with anticipation in how the disciples respond. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Now, it's interesting. Jesus, for some reason, now desires anonymity. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, here it is, the second pronouncement. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying. How is that possible? Now, I know we get to look back, right, through history and the lens of what happened. Um, They didn't understand that he was saying this again. And notice the end part of verse 32. And they were afraid to ask him. So here's the setting. They're moving towards Jerusalem. Jesus is desiring anonymity because now he is really focusing on training his own disciples and there's a lot to learn. He tells them he's got to die, not a probability, but a certainty. Yet Jesus' theology was missed. Why? Because they were blinded by an internal power struggle among the disciples. Verse 32, they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. You know what? Their silence didn't help their ignorance. You know, so they're afraid to ask Jesus for clarity, right? But you know what they're not afraid of? Peter wasn't afraid to rebuke Jesus. But now he's afraid to seek clarity on what he means. They weren't afraid to talk about who was the greatest. Do you remember this? Because that's coming. Jesus says, what were you talking about on the way? And again, you have this mysterious silence that reappears. Right. They're afraid to ask him. Now they don't want to. They don't want any further clarification. They weren't afraid to promote themselves. Matter of fact, in the next chapter, James and John, they basically ask for a blank check from the Messiah and give to us what we ask. And of course, what did they ask for? We want to sit on your right and on your left in glory. And Jesus turns around and he says, are you able to drink? the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized. What does he do? He brings it back to suffering and death. They were afraid to ask him. Of course, then the other ten, they become indignant at James and John's request. Why? But because they want a deceit next to Jesus, right? I mean, you just pull these layers back and, and they're arguing about prominence and rank and status and guess what they fail to understand? Jesus' real mission. That he came to die. He came into this world to die for our sin. And that me- message was totally being lost because of this sort of contention among good, these good disciples. Jesus predicts his suffering and death another time in chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. And it was right after that that James and John asked this. Look at chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Of course, what does Jesus say then? Look at verse 39. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What's beautiful, and you've got this sort of character development, is James and John both do drink the cup. They both die. John ends up on the island of Patmos for being persecuted because he was a herald of the word of God. James and John ask for a crown. Jesus offers them a cup. It's also interesting that This cup sort of surfaces in Gethsemane where the disciples, all the disciples will follow him into the garden where he's praying and great drops, sweating, great drops of blood, Luke records. And what does Jesus say? To the father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But he takes it and he's trying to let the disciples know this is the big thing. I have come here to die for your sin, to pay the penalty. But in the middle of his teaching, then look at the next point that runs counterculture in Mark chapter nine. Go back to Mark chapter nine, verse thirty three. So they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, now really, just remove yourself out of sort of like our highland setting right now. You are in a house with Jesus. You're starting to see he's not just a normal teacher. He is the Messiah. You're in a house with him. And he asked, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34. But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servantable." Of, of course, the debate, they're arguing about who's the greatest. But you would think because what just happened The transfigure earlier in Mark chapter nine happened and who who got to go with Jesus, Peter, James and John. They go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They see him transfigured. That should have settled who the greatest is, right? It's Jesus. But now the other disciples are probably thinking, why did Peter, James and John get invited? And we didn't. And while they're at the base of the mountain, there's a failed exorcism. They come down. The father says, I brought my son to your disciples. They could not cast out the demon. You've got all these complexities of ministry, the weight, the burden, the complexities and challenges of ministry. And they're trying to argue who is the greatest. Well, Jesus was just transfigured up on the mountaintop. A failed exorcism. They're not even serving, able to serve this family. You would think then that when Jesus comes down and casts out the demon, that that would have like silenced the ecclesiastical ladder climbing and pushing each other out of the way. And it doesn't. It's almost like the nine's failure to cast out the demon only added fuel to the conflict. So Jesus gives them this teaching. What were you discussing on the way? Look at verse 35 again. But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, and he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus' instruction defines status in God's kingdom by two traits. The first one is lowliness, last of all. And the second is service, servant of all. Their debate about who is the greatest led to Jesus providing clarity on what Kingdom status looks like and then he gives them an object lesson. He sits down. He calls the 12. Look at verse 36. It's not what you expect. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why a child? Well, it's got to be connected to what they're arguing about. They're arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus who is well in the kingdom it's it's lowliness and it's service. And then he takes a child who would have been in the background, and he probably puts him in sort of the, in, in the crook of his arm and this child who because of society pushes them into the background he's like he's he's still dependent upon his caregivers he doesn't have any status he's got no accomplishments he's a child and Jesus accepts him and moves this child that had been in the background and puts him right in the center of these 12 men who were just arguing about who was better and it's and the and the illustration the object lesson of a child is this it's not about all the status that your society sort of accumulates. It's about completely depending on Jesus Christ. It's a lesson on status. Matter of fact, he'll actually connect this to salvation in Matthew, where Jesus says in Matthew eighteen three, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As long as I'm resting in my status or my accomplishments or somehow I think I can add to my salvation or I can gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven by something that I have done, I'm going to miss it. My pride is going to cause me to miss the kingdom. And so Jesus takes this child and he says, if you receive him, you received me. Why would we receive that child? We don't even know his name. His name isn't given. We don't know his family. That's the point. We know absolutely nothing about him. And we're going to receive him. Why? Because Jesus received him. And he puts them in their midst. It is the child's seeming littleness and unimportance that is so striking. So three things in this narrative that sort of run countercultural. The king of the kingdom must die and rise from the dead. And, And that message will become muddled if we start getting into... Sort of what the disciples did in sort of these rivalries and these discussions that are like we don't even we don't even understand what Jesus is saying now. What does he mean go to Jerusalem and die? And or, Well, let's not even ask him. The first must be last of all and servant of all. And the kingdom is larger than our personal experience of it. That's the last point. Let's look at that. Because the next section highlights the disciples failure to receive those whom they might naturally reject the child of the previous lesson. So then look at verse 38 of Mark, chapter nine. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I like what R.T. France in his commentary says about this. He said the effect of this pericope is to encourage a welcoming openness on the part of Jesus' disciples, which is in stark contrast to the protective exclusiveness more often associated with religious groups, not least within Christian tradition. What was the danger? I mean, if you're tracking with the narrative, what was the danger? The danger is the disciples start arguing even among their 12 who's the greatest. And that's going to affect their ministry in general. They're not going to be able to understand and embrace Jesus' mission. They're not going to proclaim Jesus' mission to other people. And they're going to start setting up false barriers where Jesus has to bring a child into their midst and say, "Okay, I'm going to give you a lesson about the kingdom. And it's not the way you see it. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 11, um, this happens again with another good man. It says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, and in this picture really Moses and and Jesus are similar, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. See, this was a blow to the identity of the disciples. They wanted to be sort of that elite group and now Jesus is saying, if they're, if they're not against us, they're for us. By the way, you know what would have been really annoying to, to the disciples? What, 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 what was this other group doing? They were casting out demons. Guess what they had just failed at? And now you have no names outside of your brand name that are actually becoming successful. And they don't like it. And Jesus said, you guys need to turn your values right side up. What he was warning against was against a narrow identity mentality. We're not talking about deviant doctrine, we're not talking about legitimate things that have to be worked through and, 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 and need discernment, you know, to, to, to find out what is at the base of something. We're just simply talking about man-made walls that we put up where we're more comfortable because sometimes deep down in our heart, we have created a culture of fear. And that fear speaks, and then that fear is in competition with one another. And so here, what what do the disciples do? We try to stop them. They're undermining our special status. Um, An outsider is succeeding, where the special agents of Jesus have failed. And this is how they want to react. They want to isolate, and they want to condemn those who aren't in their group. And Jesus gives this very refreshing lesson. If they're not against us, they're for us. Luke, verse verse 38, John said, because he was not following us. Do you know it's possible for someone to follow Jesus and not fully follow us? That's what you see in Mark chapter nine. Listen to Jesus on the subject. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And again, I, I need to help untether you from hearing this through sort of your current experience as a church in, in weighing a candidate. And no way am I saying you've got you to gotta move your walls down and stop being discerning and, and embrace. It's not. I told you I'm not trying to push or shape your vote. I'm trying to bring you back to the principles of the kingdom as you see Jesus. R.T. France said, the cliquishness which too easily affects a defined group of people with a sense of mission is among the worldly values which must be challenged in the name of the kingdom of God. All Jesus was doing is saying, look at me. Okay, look up. Here's the the mission. I need to die. And and this is plan A and there's no plan B. And it's the 12 men. And one of them in there is Judas. So he gets removed out. And these men are now commissioned to go and preach that. But there's a lot of clutter in the way before they can be effective. So before we observe communion, three questions. Is your life free? Free genuinely free of status-seeking and putting others down to advance yourself and from unbiblical separation. Second is your spirit towards other Christians with whom you may disagree, pleasing to Jesus. We're going to disagree. Some of us have disagreed for over 12 years and we still gather and worship the same Lord on Sunday morning. But is our spirit towards other Christians? Even as we are aggressively seeking clarity, am I maintaining charity? Again, clear doctrinal deviation, not question. Okay, we're assuming that's in place. And then third, do you condemn those who aren't with you or with everything you have aligned yourself with, forgetting that they are your brothers and sisters in Christ and on Jesus' side? The king of the kingdom died. It happened just like he said. So that we can be forgiven of our sin and be cleansed from all our unrighteousness. And do you know how that's received by faith. If you're here this morning and you have no hope and no joy and no confidence in the forgiveness of your sin, the king of the kingdom died so that you could have access the forgiveness of sin second the first must be last of all and servant of all what what should that look like let me just say in my life because mark 10 45 by the way that's right in the the context of the the entire passage we were looking at this morning it says for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many the disciples finally get it and this is what i want to i want to encourage and exhort us to not lose focus of the main ministry of gospel proclamation. Because what you see then is you see Peter and you see some of these other men preaching in the book of Acts and they're covering 104 geographical places. 113 different people, 26 different sermons, 60 instances of witnessing, and those people are starting churches, and that's just the first generation of church history, but that would have never happened had Jesus not re-educated his disciples to accept the values of the kingdom in meekness and humility and last of all and servant of all, and there's no way that ministry in Acts is going to be effective until his Follower learners value what he values and start to reflect his character and his love.